We are in a teaching series through the incredible book of Exodus in the Old Testament, and we're calling it Deliverance. We'll be in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, and I'll read all the way through chapter 2, verse 10 today. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one will be brought to you. And you can take it home and start reading this narrative. It is, uh, to be honest, this, uh, the book of Exodus is really, really doing, it feels like it's doing a number on me, like my soul. It's so good. Um, it's so good for, for my life. And I hope as we as a church get into this, it's just going to terraform our souls as a church. Um, one of the ways that we're trained to read the Bible or hear the Bible being taught on uh, a church on Sunday is like by a three-point sermon of like things that you can apply to your life today. And I, I think that's great. Um, I think that that is a, a really helpful way to teach and preach and even to listen to sermons. However, there are some texts that you just have to let wash over you, that you just have to submerge yourself inside the narrative and just be okay with all the tension and all the unanswered questions. The very fact that the text doesn't resolve everything yet is part of the process. And we are really quick to try to resolve things. And so the text today doesn't have a resolution. I will try to invite us in just ways of responding to the teaching, but mainly the teaching is let this text hit you, uh, ruminate on it. It might, the, the things might not click into focus until maybe Thursday or Friday of next, next, next week, but sit with it. Let it, let this exodus is supposed to get into your imagination so that you are exodus shaped people. So that you and I are able to see both injustice and God's deliverance working in the world at the same time. And participate in God's deliverance against injustice. That's what the book of Exodus is, is trying to make us a storied people. That's why this is a story. And it's written as a story and it's beautiful. So let me start at verse 15. Um, if you were not with us the first two weeks, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the teachings. It is a story, so it makes sense that you don't jump into like, book three of Harry Potter right away. You got you to start book one, right? So, um, so you, you might want to go back and listen to those, those sermons. So verse 15, chapter one, Exodus. The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the tyrannical, irrational king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, meaning they were midwives of the Hebrew women, whose names were Sifra and Pua, Gosh, those names are amazing. Um, they, you guys need to start naming your kids this again. Um, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before we arrive. <laughs> this is a great answer. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order, since that didn't work, since the midwives killing babies on the birth stool didn't work, give this order to all the whole realm of Egypt. 
every Hebrew boy that is born, you must drown or throw in the Nile, but let every girl live. So now everyone's involved in this thing. Now, there's not a chapter break in Hebrew. So this is the very next sentence now. A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, which is kind of a cool thing in the middle of all this oppression that a marriage happened. And she became pregnant. And you're supposed to go, oh, no. And she gave birth to the son. And you're supposed to go, oh, oh, no. This is not good. This boy is destined to die. And when she saw that the child was a fine child, was a good child. I don't know what that, well, I know what that means. But it's kind of, it reads weird here. It's like, oh, you're cute. You should live. Not like, ugh. (laughs) Like, maybe, that's not what it's saying, okay? It's not like, it's not like. Anyway, um, when she saw the child was good or fine, uh, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, or some of your translations say she got an ark. That's what the word is. She got an ark, a small little ark for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood, Moses' sister stood at a distance. Well, we know this is Moses, by the way. Sorry, I gave that away. His sister, <laughs> this baby's sister, my bad, um, stood at a distance to see what would happen to this baby. Then Pharaoh's daughter, you're supposed to get afraid again, went down to the Nile, you're like, oh no, to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank and she saw a, the basket among the reeds. You're supposed to be afraid. That Pharaoh's daughter, the enemy's daughter spots this kid and sent her female slave to get it. And she opened and saw the baby. The tension's thick here. What's going to happen? He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, who was there, went up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. (laughs) Pharaoh's daughter said to her, okay, you know, it's what I want you to do. Take this baby and nurse him for me to Moses' mom, and I will pay you. (laughs) So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, when he was weaned, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This, this is such a good text. Let's pray. Lord, I ask God that we would um, let the implications and the story of this uh, text uh, teach us, train our imagination on how you work, God. We are so myopic sometimes. We think in spans of like 24-hour days. We think in spans of like, well, God didn't do anything for me since this morning. We are so myopic and we think about only ourselves. If we were to confess, we think about only our lives. Some of us, not all of us. When you're after the redemption of a whole people group, a whole world. So Lord, train us, teach us today. May we sit in uh, the beauty of the story, the tension of the story, um, the drama of the story, um, and the subversive qualities of the story, God. And... um, And we thank you. We love you. I pray for help. ask that you would help 
me communicate these things to your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So the question that I want to posit to you as we get started is how does God deliver? How does God deliver or how does God bring salvation? This is our typical question. Our typical question, though, when we think about this, is sometimes not really framed like how is God going to deliver. We don't really care about how. Most of the times we care about when. When will God deliver? See, we're a people that are locked into space and time, and we ask the time question. Lord, when will you deliver me? Our question isn't so much how, but when. When will you save me from what I'm in? Just think about the the situation you find yourself in today. How did you show up to church today, this morning, when you walked into church? Think about what causes you right now in your life right now to cry out to God or to cry out to the universe or to cry out in anger or defeat. Think about it. It might be some marital problem, a problem in your marriage. You've been in a long long struggle with your spouse or something between you or something hidden or the fact that you, you desire your spouse to be um, uh, either a follower of Christ themselves or a, a leader in your home or perhaps the marital question is the question you're not married and that's the problem. It might be a family issue. Someone in your family is sick and you've been crying out to God for weeks, months, years. Or maybe you're trying to start a family and you find it to be close to impossible. Or you're trying to make it as a family in San Francisco. It might be a societal problem, something you see every day that you think that others just don't care about. Like what is it in your life right now that you, you're like, how long, God? When will you deliver me from this? If you call that thing to mind now, what you might find, and whatever it is, you might want to scribble it down. What you might find is that what you, when you go to pray or when you, go, when you cry out, your, your, your question is when. When will this get better? When will I overcome this? When will things change? When? This is the refrain of the Psalms. How long, O Lord? When will change happen? How long? This is a time question. And this is the question that we're we're the kind of species that worries about time. We are locked in time. And so we ask the time question. My wife and I just moved into a new home. And our new home, uh, well, the food choices are not as good as the restaurants in our old neighborhood. (laughs) We used to live in Petrero Hill by the Mission District. So food was like down the street. You would walk to it or quickly drive to it. It's just really, really quick. And so we live, we don't live outside the city, but we live a little further away where the food is a little further away. So I had to download these uh, food apps. You can get food delivered to your home, not just pizza, like all foods. (laughs) Kind of incredible. And as I was trying to choose the right app, my only question was, how long? (laughs) I don't care how you get it to me, drones, however, I just want to know when will it happen? I want the, the quick, I was only concerned about when. When we, when we face things in our life, we are usually concerned around the time question. When will this happen? But here, the Exodus narrative is more concerned about the how question. How will God deliver? How will God deliver those oppressed 
from a evil, tyrannical ruler who's killing Hebrew babies. How? This is what the narrative is involved in answering. The text is concerned with the question of how. Now, I can answer the question of when if you want to know. I don't think you'll be satisfied with the answer. The, the answer, if you're asking when will he deliver, the answer is 80 years. I don't know if you're satisfied with that answer or not. Probably not. What if the answer to what you're praying about right now, I said 80. The answer is 80 years. The narrative is not concerned about when. The narrative is concerned about how. How will God do this? If you get this, if you understand this, this how, how is God going to deliver, you will see the wisdom and the power and the beauty of God in your life and I believe in history. So how will God do it? How does God deliver? Here's how. What we learn from this narrative is that God delivers unexpectedly, subversively, and thoroughly. Unexpectedly, that's what this story is about. God, God delivers in an unexpected way. He delivers subversively. You're like, whoa, that was pretty clever. And he delivers thoroughly, which takes its time. Let's look at this text to see the seeds of this in our narrative today. First, we have to plunge our mind into the world of danger. In the world of brutality and depression. We cannot be guilty of romanticizing the Bible here. We quickly read, we don't slowly read Exodus 1 and 2. We usually, usually skip right to chapter 3. But you can't romanticize this thing. It's a scary world that the Hebrews are living in. There's this new king. He's the Pharaoh who comes to power, who does not honor the old policy that the other king had with the Hebrew people, who are, who are famine refugees from Israel. These refugees are being fruitful and multiplying and out of an irrational fear of this Hebrew ethnic minority, the Pharaoh in the name of national security is justifying their slavery and it leads to statewide genocide. This is a world of irrational destructive power. And it's not just irrational destructive power of a disturbed individual. It is rather a brutalizing public policy that has all the appearance and the force of rationality. The way he pitches it to his, his kingdom, his state, is the Hebrews might actually outnumber us and then overthrow us. So we have to keep their numbers down. So kill every baby boy. And it starts to make sense in their minds, in the Egyptians' minds. Pharaoh's program is a corporate systemic operation that has at its disposal enormous technical capacity that relies on immense ideological authority, thus generating actions that become policy. In other words, Pharaoh uses his power to create a system in his own country that when people enslave or kill Hebrews, they believe they are being good citizens that are acting in the best interest of the country. This Pharaoh is insane. Think about this. He starts killing the very people who will grow up to be the biggest help in his society. Slave men. It's a self-defeating policy. He's so deep in irrationality and irrational fear, the Pharaoh has evoked a policy of systematic murder of precisely the babies who might be the most productive workers in the state system. This is, Pharaoh is a picture of fear and stupidity mixed together. And in his crosshairs of this fearful, stupid man is Israel. This little unnoticed community is the focus of our attention. 
because the whole world depends on the possible survival of this community. God has promised, we talked about this last week, God has promised that he will save the world, that he will bless the world through this family. And so the whole world lies in the, there, this whole, the whole world lies in the balance of this tiny community who is oppressed and enslaved by an irrational, fearful, stupid Pharaoh. So the question is, how will God save this enslaved community against this irrational tyrant who is using state power to oppress and annihilate them? Now, there's probably a million ways you can think of. How will God take care of this guy? And, there, and you, as you, if you stopped in the narrative now and you're like, oh gosh, there's so many ways. If I was God, like choke on his tongue. He, that could happen. The Pharaoh could choke on his tongue. A person of power and position to speak sense into him rises up and speaks sense into the Pharaoh. That could happen. God visits him in his sleep and says, stop doing this or else. Sniper. Like any, any of these decisions, right? You're thinking, if I was God, there's so many ways to take the Pharaoh out. This, this wicked, wicked person out. There's so many ways. Think of the ways that you would solve your problems if you were God. You know you do this. How would you solve your problems if you were God? You're like, Lord, if there was just a check that showed up in the mail or on my account, like bank error in your favor or something like this. If someone acquired, if it would just be so easy, like if you met the person of your dreams on Muni by them offering you their seat and to share their morning bun they got from Tartine, like that moment, <laughs> you're like, God, that could happen today. If you've ever found yourself saying, God, it's so easy for you to do what I'm asking. It is so easy. You are God. Just do it. Just, I want to see the person today. That, if, if you know exactly, this, this is it right here. There's so many ways to deal with Pharaoh. There's so many ways when you pray to God, like, God, I, I have ways. If you want my advice, I have ways. <laughs> but the question is, how does God save? The answer, midwives. Did you see that coming? No one sees this coming. Sifra and Pua. That's how God saves. How in the world will God deliver, deliver Israel from this tyrannical Pharaoh? Answer, Sifra and Pua, and they're named. Pharaoh doesn't even get a name, but these women get a name. These women that, these women get names, which means they're in the credits. I mean, they're in the credits. They get names. They're not just like midwives and like they're Sifra, Pua, and then they're named, right? They're named. And how does God save? And not just through Sifra and Pua, not just them, but through four other women who through their fearlessness and their courage in the face of this villain stand in faithfulness to what's right and what's good. God delivers through six women in all. And not just Hebrew women, as if this part of the story is about women who fear Yahweh. This part of the story is not, about, not simply about women who fear Yahweh. There are midwives, which we don't really know if they're Hebrew midwives or not. We know that they were midwives to the Hebrews. But some people think that they were actually Hebrew midwives, and some, which would be an easy thing to go, we're not killing these babies. But others believe that they were actually Egyptian midwives who served the Hebrews. We don't really know. There's Moses and Moses's, or there's Moses' mom and Moses' sister, who we know are Hebrew. They, therefore, they fear God. But then there's Pharaoh's daughter, 
and her servants who are part of the enemy. And the weird thing about this story is that all of these women, some who fear Yahweh and some who don't, they all strangely conspired together to save this Hebrew baby. It's as if the story is telling us women have this intuition that this is wrong. No matter if you're, if you're from, no matter where you're from or which God you serve or what side you're on, this is wrong and we, women say, we will work together to subvert this whole thing and bring about deliverance. It's like that's happening in the story. And all of the, and this is what's so fascinating about this story. All of this takes place in and is retold in and is written in a patriarchal society. This is so subversive. Moses is a man who will lead the people of Israel out, but who has to deliver Moses? Two times we're told explicitly in the very beginning of Exodus that women save Moses. Women save Israel. This is subversive, and here's why. Not only is this a patriarchal society and the story opens up with women saving Israel. That is so subversive. But the other subversive part is God is not mentioned as a character or an agent in the plot of the first two chapters of Exodus. God is not named yet. So one writer says this, there is no doubt that God is present, but quite below the surface of the rhetoric. However, the narrator has wrought a powerful interface between the hiddenness of God and the daring visibility of women. Come on, that is so good. This is what's going on in this subversive text. If the question is, where is God in all of this? The narrative answer is, well, there were these women who subverted the entire kingdom. And these women were Sipphora and Pua. They were Pharaoh. Well, let's just read the story. Look at verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that the, the child was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay, look at how all this happens. First, um, Moses' mom. We know it's Moses now. It's, it, it named it. So I'll just call him Moses' mom. Moses' mom saw that Moses was tov, is the Hebrew word. Good. That he was tov. Now, you guys remember we talked about this last week. Whenever there's all kinds of words scattered in Exodus that are hyperlinks, right? So the word good, tov, is a hyperlink to Genesis chapter 3. So if you click on this word in the Bible, it goes, takes you to Genesis 3. This is what Genesis 3 says. When the woman, this is Adam and Eve. This is the, this is the, uh, the garden story where uh, Adam and Eve uh, sin and fall from, um, from, they fall into sin and then they're expelled from the garden. The narrative reads like this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, tov is the word, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So a woman was there, grabbed the fruit, said, the fruit that of, from the forbidden tree, it is good. Up to this point in the narrative, only God, God defines what good is. He sees, he creates morning and night and it was good. He creates plants and animals and they were good. The sea, it was good. Humanity, and it was good and it was very good. That's God's role. He defines good. All of a sudden Eve goes, no, 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 this is good. I'll, def I'll define good. That's the kind of the, how the narrative works. I'll define what's good. Even though God says this is not, this, I shouldn't eat, we can't eat this tree. Um, I see it's good and she eats. And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves and they hid. Now, what's going on here in Exodus chapter 2, and this is the brilliance of the storytelling, the Exodus story reads like Eve's redemption story. This is the redemption of Eve or the redemption of woman. The woman sees that the seed was good. She looks at, at Moses and she sees he's good. She saw a deliverer and in faith she acted to partner with God and rebel against the Pharaoh. And she didn't hide herself. She actually hid the baby from evil. There's this whole hiding narrative going on as well. Good, I will see what's good and then I'm hiding. But, but the redemption story is told through Moses' mother. She sees that the boy was good. Tov, same word. And so she partners with God and save, she sees and she knows the promise. You guys remember the promise after in Genesis 3, God says that from your seed will come a deliverer. So um, what Moses' mom is thinking is this is him. This is the seed. And so let's hide him. Let's protect him. Let's partner with God. So what if, what if um, when God saves, he say uh, he's thorough. He's thorough He's redeeming more than your story. So this is, this is, I think this is the question that comes up in this text. What if when God is, is redeeming, when God is working in your story, he's not just simply after redeeming your story? What if he's after redeeming like family of origin stories too? Like what if he's after doing that? What if he's actually doing more than your story? We've been trained to think about our story. Redeeming my story, my narrative, my worldview. My, what if God was after more than that? What if through this thing, God's not just re, uh, about redeeming um, Israel, but redeeming Eve and her storyline as well? This is so much bigger than just this one little boy. We sometimes get so myopic to think it's about us when God is after something so much bigger. He's redeeming through Moses' mother the storyline of Eve. And now the subversiveness of God's salvation continues. Look at verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. By the way, she got a, an ark. An ark. And then she placed a child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. We, okay. We always think um, that things change are changed by raw power. Like that's how things, force, power, brutality, winning versus losing. But to do that would miss out on the hidden surprise of God's power for life and the faithful women strong enough to withstand genocide. We're invited here to imagine where, where one baby born overrides the brutality, the, the brutalizing fear of Pharaoh. We're, we're asked to imagine, imagine one baby born who can override all of Pharaoh's kingdom. And, and his mother, who has to make the hardest decision of, that any mother would have to make to entrust her baby to God in a way that seems irresponsible at the time. How's that? She, she, listen to what she does. She puts him on the river that all the Hebrew baby boys were drowned in. 
She puts him on the Nile. Think about that. Like you couldn't find him a, think of a better thing to do with him than put him on the river that babies were drowning in. But she puts him in an ark. By the way, it's a hyperlink to Noah. So Moses floats on the river that was intended for his death. Think about that. He floats on the river. Okay, this is how God saves. Through, okay, remember we talked about this in Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death? Not around, through, on it. This is something that will come up again at the Red Sea as well, but I don't want to get too far ahead. God saves through these things or on them. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Okay, you're supposed to let this, um, let this hit you uh, in, a, in a way that makes you scared a little bit. Because you might know the story, but you're, not, you're supposed to read this as if you're reading it for the first time. And her tenants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her female slaves to get it. The daughter of Pharaoh comes to the river to bathe and finds a baby. Now, there's all kinds of questions here. Question one, was this planned by Moses' mom? That's a question. Question two, why is Pharaoh's daughter willingfully bathing in a river that's full of babies drowning? Why would you bathe there? The other question is, what will she do when she sees the baby? Will she replicate her raging father and kill the baby on the spot? Don't move too fast from this part. It's supposed to make you afraid. It's like the scene at the end of that movie, Get Out. When you see sirens pulling up and you freak out and you know what that means and you know what's going to happen next and your heart sinks, the same exact thing is happening right here. The baby's in the Nile. The baby goes down the river. The baby's spotted by the enemy, Pharaoh's daughter, and your heart sinks. That's the end of this story. He's as good as dead. But that doesn't happen. The strange story of salvation continues. Verse 6, she opened it and saw the baby. And he was crying. And she had compassion for him. She had compassion for him. And she says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Now, you, you know what happens next. Moses' sister asked if she would like to find the Hebrew slave, a Hebrew slave to be a wet nurse for, for this baby. Pharaoh's daughter says yes, and she goes and gets mom. That's a crazy part of the story, right? But look, the very sister of Pharaoh defies the king too. She actually recognizes that the baby is a Hebrew baby, a child from the slave community, a child under royal ban, a child under a death sentence from her father, and she spares his life. She entered into an alliance with this baby and prepared to be his protector. This is God at work. And he's at work through women who are obedient to God, women who are disobedient to the king. He is at work through people of no power working from the margins of a slave society and community. He is working through people of extreme power that are working from a place of privilege. And these two classes of, classes of women are, are, have been designated as enemies by a royal decree from the king. But the women refuse to live out their assigned hostility to one another. In fact, they become unwitting allies, each playing an unexpected role in the life of this baby. 
And we are being told this is how God works when you don't see God at work. That's what we're being told in this narrative. How does God work? When we don't see God at work, this is how he's working. He's working through in unexpected, subversive, and thorough ways. This is God. This is how God is working. This is what God is doing. And you're invited to wash yourself in the imagination that this is God at work. This is how God is working. And you might not see that first. So a few things of observation as we, as we move to respond to this. First, the rescue plan for Moses was to take him as far away from Pharaoh's influence as possible. But what actually happened was his being raised in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh, the instrument of death, is the very instrument of giving life to Moses. Think about that for a minute. Sometimes the very thing we think is killing us or killing the things we love are actually the very things that become the instrument of bringing life and deliverance. Pharaoh is the very instrument of death and he's the one who raises Moses in his house. God takes raw material of pain through time and works through it. God, this, this is how God shows his strength. This is how God, he meets people precisely in the depths of their despair. Those are, that are working, um, he's working through your circumstances for ultimate good. We always want deliverance from them, but before the from them happens, God works in them and through them. This is, this is, this is the, the thing that we're, we're taught in the narrative. See, Pharaoh wishes to counter God's fruitful and multiplying blessing by causing his infants to die in the Nile. Because Israel's fruitful and multiplying, God's like, we're going to dr drown every baby in the Nile. And God saves Moses by casting him onto the Nile and bringing him to Pharaoh's front door. It's the, how God subverts this whole kingdom this way. This is the strange and subversive power of God. But, but we don't see it. So if you're living in the story, you don't, you don't really see this yet. If you're in the story, you would miss the origins, but it's there. All the seeds are there. Second thing we see is why did this take so long? This takes 80 years from Moses' birth with all the suffering and all the oppression and all the exploitation and all the death from the time Moses comes back to Egypt, which we'll get into next week. Remember, here's one of the things that you have to understand. Israel wasn't being delivered from sin in this narrative, this part of the narrative. We talked about slavery and the slavery sin parallel last week. And that's for sure there. That is there. That is whenever the Bible talks about sin and slavery, it's picking up on the Exodus narrative. And that's true. However, that's not the only thing happening here. There's actually something way more rich that's happening here. The Exodus redemption is not about atonement and forgiveness for one's own sin. Rather, it's about deliverance from an external evil and the suffering and injustice it caused by means of shattering and defeating the, the evil power and in an, in an irrevocable breaking of its hold over Israel. So what, what it's doing, what this narrative is doing isn't just like, okay, these people that are delivered from sin. That's not what's going on here. These people are oppressed. 
And what God is doing, he's shattering every single thing that is holding Israel captive. He is breaking all the dimensions of their slavery. He is breaking the political dimensions of their slavery. He is breaking the economic dimensions of their slavery. He is breaking the social dimensions of their slavery. And he is breaking the spiritual dimensions of their slavery. And that takes time. God is thorough. We would like to wash this whole story by saying, you know, God delivers us from sin. And we're slaves to sin and there's freedom in Christ. Okay, that is part of the story, but that is not the whole story. The whole story is God is thorough and going, my people are so enslaved that I have to get them out of all the political bondage and all the economic bondage and all the social bondage and all the spiritual bondage. He doesn't want Israel ever to be slaves again in Egypt. He wants them to be completely rid of that in their national history. He wants them to be free to serve and worship him. And this takes a long time. He is not just after Israel. I want, to, I want to free your hearts from bondage. Here you go. You're free. He wants to completely smash everything that's holding them. And that takes time. God is after breaking every social, political, economic, and spiritual chain that binds them. So when we think of what God does in our lives, what God does in our, the systems of injustice that surround us, God is after opening our eyes to it and then breaking it systemically. And it takes time. Breaking it completely. He doesn't want it to have sway and power over his world ever again. Now, there are some invitations here as we cross over to response. There's a few. First is this. Radical obedience that is... Um, that is mingled with hope. We, uh, we see the, the women in the story, Sifra, Pua, Moses' mom and sister, are examples of extreme and radical obedience with hope in God. Th- one of the sub-narratives is in this, in this part of the story is, how is God at work? It doesn't seem that God is at work here. Doesn't he see his people suffering? Doesn't he see his people enslaved? Why isn't God doing anything about it? And the answer is, God is at work through the obedience of these women. God is at work through obedience. And so is there an invitation by God into radical obedience that rebels against empire? That rebels against how the world system works? And to live life in the way that God has designed the world to work. This is, this is the invitation. This is like, um, I was with a friend this last week. And um, his son, uh, a Jewish family, his son um, was, was circumcised when he was right after, a few days after he was born at his breast. And he was telling me, I have never felt so close to God than when I obeyed God in circumcising my son. It was really strange. I never, ever thought that that would be a thing. I never thought that that emotion would hit me. It's like I'm doing something that God told my people to do thousands of years ago, and I'm obeying him, and I feel so close to God. Is there an invitation to obey God in ways that might be uh, San Francisco culturally um, weird? (laughs) That might be like subversive. 
that might be like uh, us saying, uh, we, don't serve, uh, we don't serve this nation, or we don't serve this city, and we don't serve its politics. We don't serve, we serve Christ. And to obey that. And so the way I, I see my life and the way that I use my, my body and the way that I use money and the way I see power and the way I see politics, all that serves Christ. And I want to, by serving Christ inside of these systems, to subvert the system. Are there invitations to radically obey God like this and then trust God for the outcome? That might, we might not see the fruits of our obedience until 80 years from now. This is why you should journal, by the way. <laughs> so you can look back and go, oh yeah, I, that, I, I see how those connected. And we don't know what our obedience will birth in the world. And we have to obey in hope, trust in hope, submit to God in hope. And in that, there's an invitation to believe God is at work, even if it doesn't appear so. The other thing that we're invited to do here in this, through this text is trust in the slow work of God. So many times we come to parts of the Bible like this and we try to extract like three lessons to apply directly to our lives. And that's, again, that's, that's not bad. Sometimes we're just supposed to let the story soak in us and teach us about God's character. To teach us about who God is when he's not even written into the script yet. You're supposed to sit with this narrative and go, God's at work and I don't even see him at work. And we're invited to recognize ways through our obedience of recognizing God at work. And we're invited to, 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 to sit to uh, ways where our, the, the, the world that's set up and the system that's set up to disobey God's word, we're invited to trust in God and believe in his word and then trust in his slow working. We're invited to see that God is at work when we're not, we don't necessarily see it and we can trust in its long process to do its work. I usually read this, this poem to you at the beginning of every year. Apologize, it's, it's almost May and I haven't read it yet, but here it goes. I read this at the very beginning, beginning of every year. And I usually share it with you guys. It's a poem called um, uh, Trust in the Slow Work of God. And the first part of the poem goes like this. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is a law of all progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. Trust in the slow work of God. Trust that he is at work. I often think, I ruminate on this story quite a lot of Jesus healing the blind man in Mark 8 in Bethsaida. And Jesus asked him, what would you like me to do for you? Which is one of the most common questions Jesus asks people. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? This man says, I want to see. And so Jesus does this really interesting thing, just strange. He spits on the ground. And he, makes, he makes like a little, little mud patties, little mud pies with his spit. A little unsanitary. And he, and, he, and he spits on his eyes and he, and he says, and he, and he, says um, and he kind of wipes his eyes off. And uh, he asks the, the man, do you, do you see anything? 
which is an interesting question for Jesus to ask. Um, basically like, hey, did, it, did it work? <laughs> and the man says, yeah, I can see. I see men and they look like trees. And then it says Jesus laid his hands on him again. I, 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 I think about this often. I like, I, I want the, I want, I, I want to be healed on like the first attempt. <laughs> I want the quick fix. I want to go to Jesus and go, Jesus, I need these things. And, and I want you to do it thoroughly. Like right, I want you to do it right now. And I feel like sometimes Jesus does something. He's like, did it work? You're like, yeah. I mean, kinda. I mean, I, and then what he does is he lays his hands on him again. So the thing is, I love the honesty of this man. Because um, this man, you can't really say he's blind anymore. Because he can kind of see. But you can't really say he can see. Because he's kind of blind. He's like right in the middle of those two places. He's like blind and not blind at the same time. And the guy could have left. He could have just said, Oh, I can kind of see. I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll get some glasses. <laughs> or I'll just squint. You know, like I can, I can get through life now. I got this. But the guy was pretty honest. He's like, I can, I can see. Everybody looks like trees. I don't know if that's a thing. But everyone looks like trees. Um, and he, he could have just, he's really honest with them. And so Jesus goes about and touches him again. Of course, that was like a short span of time. But I think about, the, the way that God works at times, he works in stages. Um, he, works, he works where he does it again and again and again and again. I think he works in ways that there's room to be honest. The Bible calls this lament. When you're honest with God, when you're like, God, my, my life's really sucky right now. And it's really hard and I don't like it. And I don't think you're being fair. And um, if I were you, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, and I know the pastor says you're slow, but come on. <laughs> you're like a little too slow. And where were you when? And did you even see when I, when this, I was going through that? Like, you, there's room for that. There's room for that sort of lament, that sort of honesty. And the thing is, in Exodus 2, we will get there next week, but the Israelites groaned out. They groaned in their slavery. They cried out. Now, the, the text never says who they cried out to. They don't know if they're crying out to Pharaoh saying, this is too much. We don't know if they're crying out to God. We don't know if they're just crying out to themselves. We don't know if they're complaining to each other. It doesn't really matter who they're talking to because it says the very next sentence is God heard them. Like, it doesn't matter. If you're not even a Christian, you're crying out. God hears you. God hears your groaning. God hears your suffering. He sees that. He's not like, oh, I, I can't see you until you're a Christian. Like that makes no sense at all. He sees you. He sees your agony. He sees the things that you're under. And I want to say he's at work. I believe he's at work. And there's room for you to go, Lord, I need more. I need more clarity. I need, I need more vision. I need more opportunity for obedience. I, I, I need more hope. I need you to spit on my eyes one more time because I can't really fully see yet. I kind of see what you're doing, but I kind of don't completely see. Like there's a room for that here. There's room for that in this story. There's room for just an, a simple act of obedience and you just going, I trust God and I don't know what's going to happen. These seeds of, of obedient hope that I've planted. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust God. There's room for, 
for all of that here. And so as we move into a time of responding to God, um, there's room. There's room for that. And I, and I want you to know that. that. God's been doing something fairly unique over the last few weeks in our prayer ministry on Sunday morning where it feels, it seems like um, God has listened to us as we pray. Uh, you guys are very, very, very open to just going, I want to bring this to God in prayer. And um, I want to say, let's keep that going. Let's keep that going right now. If there's lament today, let's bring our laments to God in prayer. Maybe we need to confess our lament to someone from the prayer team, maybe someone that we came with, maybe just someone random on the carpet. It's just like, pray for me. Like this, the Bible says that the church is to be a house of prayer. And so let's move into that right now. Let's pray. Lord, um, yeah, I just knew God when putting together this message, it would be a little bit more meta, a little bit bigger. That I, 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 but there it is, God. And so I pray that you would start doing the thing that the Spirit does so, so well. That you start connecting dots for us. You start showing us where in our lives there's been family of origin brokenness that you are redeeming. And it just takes a long time. That you're not just redeeming our story, but the family story that we've been born into. That we had no control over. That you're restoring nations and people groups that you're delivering from slavery and not just not just slavery to sin but things that are done to us and the way that we treat people I think of when Israel is finally free God you say remember that you were slaves in Egypt and treat the foreigner like this there are ways that you are bringing us through difficult seasons of our lives, hard seasons, crushing seasons for empathy and compassion for our world. There are so many things that you're doing in our midst, God. I pray that we would start to be open to these things. And we want to bring all the unresolved questions to you. All the, um, all the lament we want to bring to you now. In prayer. And we trust you, God, that you hear. We trust that you act. And that you're working all of this together. You are at work. I just really feel the need to pray for people to, to put their faith in you because I know that there are some, there are a lot here that doubt. And faith is a, is a it can be a volatile thing, can go away at times. I pray that you would call people, invite people, encourage, meet with us as we start placing our faith in you again. In Jesus' name, amen.